I hope I'm even half the person I am on Facebook. I never take a bad picture. I only eat the best food at the coolest restaurants and my kids are perfect. Of course, it's not real. Consciously or not, everything I post is designed to make me look smart, funny, and a good parent and husband. Even when I post about something stupid or embarrassing I did, it's just to show off how humble and self-effacing I can be. I'll bet you do it too, unless you're one of those unicorns who genuinely, truly doesn't care what anyone else thinks. More power to you. With the advent of social media, nearly everything we do is on public display, if we want it to be. Our personal lives, the news we read, and even the brands we buy have become badges of our identity, broadcast for all of our friends and family to see. But as political tribalism rages across America, it's gotten more complicated. The brands I align with have to align with my values, not just because I want to support good companies, but because supporting the wrong ones could alienate me from my tribe. It doesn't matter how much I love a chicken sandwich if my friends will think less of me for eating it. So how do brands navigate this minefield of politics, cancel culture, and consumer self-promotion? Is it even possible to appeal to everyone, or even most of everyone today? That's the question I asked Morgan Flatley, the global chief marketing officer of a little restaurant company called McDonald's. You see, McDonald's is the rare brand that Republican and Democrat, rural and urban, black and white, young and old love equally. But how? Morgan and I talked about the values and image of McDonald's, how they stay above the political pitfalls that have plagued other companies, and how they decide when it's time to take a stand, however controversial it might be. We also talked about how many alarms it takes her to get out of bed, whether Bruce Springsteen is overrated, and how much she loves, I mean hates, surprises. So grab your coffee or an Egg McMuffin and meet one of the most successful marketing executives in the world, Morgan Flatley, and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Morgan, it's so great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you. So first and foremost, what is your go-to McDonald's order? Oh, I have a classic go-to McDonald's order. It's a QPC, no onions, medium fries with barbecue sauce, and I do love a hot fudge sundae. Nice. I'm a McDonald's breakfast person, so I get an egg McMuffin and a sausage egg McMuffin and a coffee. That's it. That's my go-to. Probably. That's a good classic too, though. I love yeah, because I'm I'm terrible at making decisions, so I just get one of each, and, and that's just the way it's been forever. So, how's Chicago? Chicago's good. Yeah, Chicago's good. You know, same old, same old here. We're actually back in the office, which has been great. I mean, that has been really energizing, I think, for people to physically be back together again. So that's been really nice. We haven't done it yet, but sometime soon, hopefully soon. I do miss it. So look, a couple of weeks ago, you had another great earnings report. You know, I think everybody probably in March of 2020 didn't know what the future was going to look like. And I think most people probably feared the worst at the time, but you guys have just really not just survived, but thrived through it. How have you done it? How's it worked for McDonald's when so many other businesses have had a diff difficult ups and downs since the pandemic started? I think about that all the time. I mean, it's our secret sauce, I guess you would say, but I just reflect on the last 18 months or 20 months and what we've been through as a business and as an organization. And then to see the results that we shared recently the business performance in the US, but also globally was tremendous. When you ask how we've done it, I think there are a few things. And, you know, I'll speak predominantly from a US perspective. We have a business model that was pretty well set up for the pandemic. So, you know, in the US, 
roughly 14,000 restaurants and very, very high drive-through. And, you know, we know how to operate drive-throughs really well. That certainly, I think, structurally helped to protect our business through the heart of the pandemic. And we had started a number of years ago on this digital journey, never imagining what would happen through COVID with the acceleration in delivery and the acceleration in contactless ordering, mobile order and pay. So we had had really at least started to set our business up for that, which we could really accelerate and harness during the pandemic. And then I have to say, like as the CMO and, and obviously as a marketer, we became much more acutely aware of the customer than I think we ever have been, especially at McDonald's. You know, we are a very operationally savvy business. You know, we focus on operational metrics. I talk about like twist turns, bends, seconds, you know, quarter seconds. And the pandemic forced us to really listen to the consumer more than I think we have as a business. And it has paid dividends. How our marketing, I think, has really helped to connect and strengthen the brand through the pandemic. And, you know, you've seen we've taken big risks. We've like really leaned into our core food. We've simplified our menu. We've been there consistently for consumers, kind of based on what they needed to hear and feel from the brand during the pandemic, whether that was safety assurance or, you know, reminding them of our drive throughs or having some fun with our marketing. And I think. That's probably part of why we're seeing the strong performance today also is just we've really, I think, deepened our customer connection over the last 18 months and our relevance with customers. Well, one thing that impressed me immediately working with your team at the beginning was how agile they were. Let's face it, the McDonald's customer is the U.S. census, right? And by and large, your customer and your brand and these perceptions don't change very dramatically, right? Your market share doesn't change that dramatically, but all of a sudden, everything changed dramatically. And you're right. The way everyone sort of snapped into this mode of, hey, let's get our handle on this and understand this changing consumer by the minute, it was really impressive for a company as, as large as yours. So well, John, I should have said before, I should interrupt you, and I should have said it was definitely the insights we were getting from civic science that helped us, <laughs> that helped us really perform. Oh, that's very kind of you. That's very kind of you to say. You all did. You all gave us very real, actionable, fast-turned data at scale, and we were listening to it. So I do say that a little jokingly, but you helped us kind of think about this customer in a way we probably hadn't until the heart of the pandemic. Well, the good news is, is you listened because not everybody listens. So yeah. I, I, yeah, thank you for that. That's great. You're back in the office, but obviously for a better part of a year plus you weren't. You have kids a, a little younger than mine, but I'm sure that had to be complicated for you to have this really, really big job and adjust to doing it at home with your, how did that, how did that go for you? How did you make it work? Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't know that I really made it work gracefully all the time. Nobody <laughs> but we did. made it work. Nobody <laughs> like, made it work gracefully. Yeah. So I have three children, 11, nine, and five, two girls. The girls are the oldest. And then I have my five-year-old little boy. And, you know, I think we were fortunate in some ways where my husband was able to really scale back and really be present and help the kids with all the requirements that they had with homeschooling, which was a real blessing. And I realized how fortunate I am. And it gave me great, I think, perspective on people who didn't have that flexibility for sure. And, 
we just kind of made it work. I had this constant mantra in my head and I remember saying it. I was on a WebEx and my son fell on the stairs and started screaming hysterically as I was trying to present on this WebEx. And I remember saying in the midst of that, it was I think it was just an internal team, but our entire internal staff that I had this acute awareness that this was going to be so defining for my kids. And that was helping to kind of guide I think, and inform how I showed up for them too. And like as supportive and loving a way as I could. I mean, my little guy, my son was often sitting on my lap for meetings and he just needed to feel that kind of attention. I feel part of why it worked for me at least, and and hopefully for others on my team was just real awareness of what we needed to all go through to balance this home and work together. But I will say, It was the most intense, especially those first few months, because there was so much anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And I mean, we joke about it now, like I was bleaching my groceries. Like, you know, I mean, it was just like there was all of this fear. And at the same time, this uncertainty about work and how to support our people and our crew and run the business. I actually think part of how we got through it as a U.S. leadership team was just we were together and we were really connected. And that helped us kind of continue to share and evolve as quickly as we possibly could based on the needs of the business and our people. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk about the big theme in the conversation today is just sort of this division in the country and among our population of people. And you know, maybe one of the silver linings I saw through COVID was at least among our colleagues and the humanizing effect of being on Zoom calls with people and hearing the kids screaming in the background and having to leave a meeting to pick somebody up or take somebody to the doctor or whatever it would be. Maybe there was a little bit of bonding that happened through all of that, or at least some some empathy that was created for each other through all of it. Any funny Zoom stories? I have like one that I've become a little notorious for with the U.S. team the entire U.S. business, actually, because we retell it a lot. And I think even our franchisees. So early in March, the leadership team was meeting three times a day, five days a week. And then we were meeting a couple times over the weekend and always on Zoom with your cameras on. And our last meeting of the day was always at 6 p.m., which with young children is like a challenging time of day. And I happened to be set up like kind of outside of our bathroom. And so in the middle of one of the Zoom calls, my son, my five-year-old poor child is going to be scarred from this, like walked into camera naked, like, cause he was going to get in the bath and everyone noticed. And like little Wes was standing there totally naked as a jaybird, as like mortified as I was in the moment. What came out of it was, I mean, one, this humanity, which you were just talking about, John, like you know, we all showed up on those SLT calls, very serious, like, you know, in to solve big issues. But the reality is we're all human and we've got like chaos at home behind us. And I think giving this visibility into the chaos, and then it also helped just like, I think us all realize what we're dealing with. So, you know, Joe, who's the US president said, I'm sensing that maybe six o'clock at night is not a great time to have a Zoom. Why don't we move this earlier? And it helped, I think, all of us as leaders understand what our teams were going through, what they were juggling at home. So poor little Wes has become very known for streaking the US SLT, but it did have a lot of benefit, I think, for us as a leadership team. 
mine is not nearly as cute as that. I had an early morning call, well, call in Europe, right? So of course you're up at 5 a.m. here, whatever time doing it. More or less rolled out of bed, threw a shirt on, sat at my desk is like adjacent to our bedroom. And that call ran into another, ran into another. I never got up away from my desk. My wife was nice enough to bring me a cup of coffee. But later, probably like by 9 or 10 a.m. Eastern, I'm doing an interview. I'm interviewing a job candidate. And in the interview, my dog is barking at the door behind me. So I get up to, I said, excuse me for a minute. I turn around to open the door and realize I'm in my boxers. So to this moment, that person never said anything. I'm not sure whether it was in frame or not, but I was like, oh my gosh, because I, I was still in my boxers. So hopefully- but it's they, so they, relatable. I mean- Yeah, hopefully is. they didn't notice. Yeah. So tell us the Morgan story. I mean, you're the leader of the marketing organization of arguably the most beloved brand in the world. You came there after over a decade at a little small business called Pepsi. How do you get to this place, this elevated place and this tremendous career? What got you there? What was the winding road like? Who helped you along the way? A mentor? I love hearing the stories of your inspirations and your mentors along the way. Give us a little bit of the the Morgan background. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I never like ever in my wildest dreams would have expected that this is where I would end up and was never certainly aiming for it. And I just feel so like privileged to be in this seat today. I take it very seriously. But, you know, I'd say, and I'll do the winding road, but there's like a theme I think in it. And it maybe comes back to some of we were just talking about like people and humanity. Like I really believe I'm in the position today because of the people I've been fortunate to surround myself with, like either actively or because they happened to be in roles where they managed me or they were on my team, you know, or at an agency partner. So like I can go back through my career and like pick people who kept me in the game, pushed me to be better became a real sounding board for me and choices I made. And I like attribute all of my success today to the people on my team and who've been around me. But the winding story is I started in advertising. So I worked at a big agency, Saatchi and Saatchi in New York. And that's where I really developed this like love of creativity. I'm not creative, which is always my disclaimer, but I love surrounding myself with creative people and like fostering that. And so Saatchi gave me this like incredible appreciation of great creative people. I think like at every step, there have been great creative people around me. I went from there to business school, you know, where I was convinced I was going to fail out and I managed through and that like helped broaden me just as like a business person and leader, but it also helped like firm up my conviction that I loved marketing. And from there, I went to Pepsi, as you mentioned, and I was at PepsiCo for 13 years, 14 years, maybe. And I spent a chunk of that working on Gatorade, on the Gatorade brand. And there was a woman there who I would say was a mentor and like certainly kept me in the game and helped me evolve as a leader. Her name is Sarah Rabohagen. And she was the president of Gatorade, she came from Nike and she was like this fierce woman who was running this big business and had three kids, you know, was married. And she was a real, I think, inspiration for me on the ability to be a mom and be a very present mom and also be an executive and that it was messy and like constantly juggling things, but it worked. 
So I think about Sarah a lot. And, you know, I had my babies while I was working for her, or at least two of them. And she like kind of reassured me that I could make it all work. Otherwise, I might have stepped out. And then from there, I came to McDonald's. And then the other piece I'll mention is Sarah was certainly a mentor, but there were like a number of people who are my peers who I've like maintained throughout my career as sounding boards on decisions, actions, you know, changes I've made, even marketing programs that I've wrestled with. So I've kind of kept this group of people who I pick up the phone and call when I'm wrestling with big decisions. So that's a little bit of the journey. That mentoring is so important. I kind of try to collect them along the way because right, getting that sounding board for the tough decision. See, sometimes you need that person from outside of the organization to give that fresh perspective. Well, totally. This is at least, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying or, or over-exaggerating a bit, but you're with me today. Later on this season, I have Claudine Cheever, who's the head of global marketing for Amazon, another small company. Last season, we had CMO Meredith Verdone from Bank of America. When I think of the blue chip brands and the titan of industry marketers in the US, they're pretty much all women. No disrespect to the men. I'm not thinking about who are clients of ours. I apologize. But why is that? Why do women tend to be superior marketers? I just, I feel like it's, you know, quantitatively that appears to be true in my experience. Why is that? I always like hesitate to... Well, I'll do the okay. male bashing. Okay, uh, great. I'll let you do that. I hesitate yeah. to generalize based on gender, but that's fair. I, that's fair. But I do see it. And since you asked, I think we can talk about it. I'll let you do yeah. any bashing. And as I think about like big CMOs that I respect out there, many of them are women. I think some of it is, I think women have the ability to be perhaps more empathetic. And to be a great CMO, I think you have to get outside of yourself and think about consumers and really put yourself in consumers' minds. I don't know why, but I think women have, maybe it's the maternal side of our genes or our our makeup. Women tend to be able to be, I think, more empathetic and think through the eyes and the lens of consumers. And then I also think again, at risk of really getting myself in trouble with my male friends and colleagues out there, I think women also are able to surround themselves with a lot of different people and take perspective and advice. And I have found a little bit of what we we're talking about, my, you know, my success, whatever, whatever that means is because I listen to a lot of people and I listen to a lot of really smart people with different opinions that I really respect. I let them at times change my views because I'm able to get outside of myself and my own ego or stubbornness and listen to a lot of different perspectives. So I don't know if those are uniquely female traits, but I see them in a lot of women who are successful CMOs. And again, I'll let you do any male bashing. Well, I mean, I know, and I think, I think that's 1 million percent the right answer. I'm not certainly not going to say that there aren't empathetic men. I'd like to think you can be empathetic, but I definitely think it's a certain characteristic that skews more heavily among women in my experience. And I think it does manifest itself in really smart, empathetic. I think marketing has to be an empathetic exercise, right? Totally. You've got to, we talked earlier about sort of the humanization that has happened in COVID. I tell my own team this when they're selling to people like you at these big companies is look, the, the person you're selling to is a 
parent, they have fears, they have hopes, they go to the grocery store, they they have good days and bad days. Like we're all human and understanding that regardless of what it is you're selling, whether it's a hamburger or software, right? Like understanding that human side of people. And, and I do see that at least again, it's not a universally singularly female trait, but I do think it's more prevalent among the women, female marketers that I know. So Okay, Morgan, that's it's awesome. Great to get to know you a bit and just such an impressive career arc that you've had and to accomplish so much and so much yet ahead of you. But I want to talk about a couple of really just big, what I'll call macro trends that we at Civic Science see in our data just at every corner, every turn. Really kind of two of them that I think really converge around this conversation. And McDonald's is at a really interesting position in the middle of these two. And, you know, one is, is something we all live, eat and breathe, probably shake our head at, which is just the rising sort of divisiveness in our country and the political tribalism is the buzzword du jour that, that I'm always using that's out there. And then there's the second trend that I think kind of predates the political tribalism of our era, at least, but how the brands that we buy, the media that we watch, they've become these like badges, not just badges of our identity, but they've become almost an expression of our also our social and political views, right? I, I shopping at a certain place or not shopping at a certain place is a particular statement that people are, are making. And you guys, as I said earlier, you know, McDonald's, your customer is like the entire U.S. census, and there aren't many companies that can say that. But I want to talk about that kind of second trend first, which is this sort of evolution of, of brands as a statement about myself, right? You, McDonald's has over four million Instagram followers millions more on Facebook, right? People are raising their hand in highly social public settings and saying, I love this place. I love to eat at this place. I'm a huge McDonald's fan. What do you think that consumer is trying to express about themselves when they align themselves with the McDonald's brand? Or what do you want it to say about them in a way that aligns with the values of McDonald's or the image of McDonald's? What do you think it says? It's so interesting because we are such a scale brand. I mean, I I think we reach like 80 plus percent of the U.S. population comes through a McDonald's every year. And so how do you reach that wide an audience and yet still remain some sort of badge value to your point? Like, or what is the badge value when you reach that wide an audience? There are a couple of things like functionally, you know, I think people who eat at McDonald's are like making a statement around delicious, craveable food, like comfort food in essence, our fries, our burgers, our milkshakes, our sundaes. Like there's a piece to that. There's certainly a nostalgia piece that I think is part of what people are signaling when they snap a picture of themselves and put it on Snapchat or Instagram. But I think it's actually more interesting to push on what it says about who they are as a person. And to me, there's a piece around the democracy of our brand. And there's a piece around, when we think of our brand values, inclusivity. And we are like a highly, highly inclusive brand where anyone can come to McDonald's and have a similar consistent experience. Our fries are the same all over the world, very affordable. And I think as people post about the brand or connect with the brand, they're reinforcing that value of the most democratic brand and the inclusive nature of our brand. So, and then there's something, John, that maybe we'll talk about around, we've also more recently allowed consumers to like 
play with the brand and co-create with the brand in ways that they probably haven't before. That's also brought some fun and, you know, allowed us to have consumers lean in and recreate pieces of the brand on social media that we might typically not have been as flexible on, but we recognize you got to lean in and let people today engage with your brand and make it a little bit their own, which is scary for a big brand like McDonald's. Oh, yeah, it sure is. But I also think, and I want to come back to the, you talked about being a democratic brand, small D, but I want to come back to that because that sort of really gets at the, yeah. at the center of these issues that we're seeing. I think there's something, look, we all know on social media, and I'm fully, fully guilty of this myself, right? When we portray kind of these ideal versions of ourselves on social media, we only post our good pictures. We seldom post our unflattering ones, unless we're trying to show off of how sort of, you know, humble and self-effacing we are. We want the restaurants where we're eating and the places we check in from to say something about us, right? And there's something about, and I really believe this is because I want to talk about Gen Z for a minute, because I think that's the place where you guys have made such headway in, in an impressive way with this. And I live with two, a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. And they are, it's like Gen X a bit, right? Where they don't want to come across as pretentious in their social media. They don't want to come, they want to come off as fun. And I think you're inclusive is super, yeah. super important. And that word has many, many layers, of course, associated with it. But McDonald's seems to have struck that chord with older and younger generations in ways that I, I don't see a lot of other brands that have. The flip side of that coin is that those consumers, those young consumers are also very fickle and they're unforgiving. It's very clear in our data that when you ask people whether they tend to trust or distrust people when they first meet them, basically the younger you are, the less likely you are to trust. That is a very common thread that we're seeing. This young Gen Z group is very cynical, very suspicious, right? Which means it's a huge amount of pressure on you, right? To at every step, every step along the way, you run the risk of once they make up their mind and go somewhere else, not being able to get them back. So how do you think about that, maintaining that trust in this massively inclusive global brand of every man, woman, and child on the planet? How do you think about that? What protects you and ensures that continued level of trust with consumers? I remember reading that data from you all because we've been spending a lot of time talking about brand trust, but then also about Gen Z, Gen X, that generation. So I remember being like particularly struck by that data and, and how they're more likely to distrust than trust. I think ultimately brand trust comes down to a little bit of how you trust people. I think about me trusting a person, it tends to tie to do they say and behave in a similar way? Like the way they talk about themselves, do they then follow through and how they behave? And are my experience with them consistent with who they say they are, how they project themselves in the world? And so we've tried to take some of that frame and think about that with brand trust. So this goes back to like marketers, not over-intellectualize it. Let's be really human in how we think about it. And is our brand, which is about serving delicious, feel-good moments to everyone, are we staying resonant with that and consistent with that? And then are the experiences that we provide paying that back? And I don't think we always get it right. But if you think about consistent, and one of the things we're really good at at McDonald's is consistency in terms of how our food is served, our pricing architecture, like we have great consistency in a handful of those core values, the Happy Meal box. Like if that doesn't provide 
feel good moments to a kid. I mean, my kids get giddy about opening, at least my little guy, about opening that Happy Meal box. So I think one of our advantages on this brand trust is just the intense focus on how we show up consistently around the globe through the food that we serve and many of the experiences. Now, I do think one of the things we have to keep challenging ourselves on, and you know, you've probably seen it in the last 18 months, is how does that have to evolve for younger people today? I use youth really loosely, but for like 18 to 34-year-olds, how do we have to evolve the brand? Because they do expect brands to stand for more in the world. And what does that mean for McDonald's, who needs to also include everyone you know, under our golden arches and welcome everyone into our restaurants? But we still need to have clear points of view on who we are as a brand and what we stand for and our values. Well, we're going to come back to that and spend a few minutes on it for sure. And that gets really to the heart of the issues here, I think, that we're, we're seeing in the data. But jumping into the most pernicious part of this trend, which is, is the politics. You know, we talked about, you mentioned McDonald's as a small D democratic brand, inclusive brand. It is so hard to do that today because brands now aren't just necessarily a statement of my personality, but they are in and of themselves a, a social statement. And in some ways they're being weaponized in sort of political ways. You've got, say, a brand like Nike, no small brand by any measure, but has made a very conscious, very public decision to lean very hard into one side of the political spectrum. You've got on the other side, I don't know, I guess my pillow maybe comes to mind, but doing it, it's almost expected that you have to pick one side or the other. And if you're not on my side, you must be on the other side. And that's just the world that we live in today. We see it all the time. You know, I struggle with this and the things that I write constantly where I know, I know I've written something or spoken something effective when both sides yell at me about it. Right. Mm-hmm. If I get nasty emails that morning, assuming I'm on one political side or the other, that's just the, unfortunately the sad state we're in. But one thing that Republicans and I mean, we, we have 300,000 questions in our survey database that we've asked. And I can tell you one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree on alike is McDonald's. And I don't say that to be trite or ironic. It's true. And it's even in your own category. You've got maybe brands like Starbucks and Chipotle that are seen as sort of being center left or a brand like Chick-fil-A that's sort of seen as being center right. It's hard to think of anyone else that's kind of covers the spectrum the way that you have. How do you operate in a landscape like this, running arguably the largest, most universally loved brand in America? How do you ensure that continued inclusivity in that landscape? Yeah, I mean... I know I don't have the answer on this one, but I can share some of what I think about because I I wrestle with this a lot. I wrestle with it a lot because I think brands need to have a point of view. And the best brands, I think, have a clear point of view and take risks and stand for something. The beauty of McDonald's is part of what we stand for is this little D democracy you know, I often talk about we're like the community center. In many places in the country, we are the place where people get together to talk about their day and talk about politics over a cup of coffee, no matter what side they're on, that come together in a McDonald's as their, in essence, community center. So we have to be really careful that we don't politicize that. What I struggle with is how do you take that magic of the Golden Arches being this, you know, place of comfort and community in many rural and urban communities around the U.S., but yet still stand for something and not water it down. 
And I think what we've found in the last two years is to really lean into what people love about McDonald's. And that can range from what people love about our fries or, you know, as you were talking, what people love about their egg McMuffin. So you can talk about what people love about their the food in like really fun, intimate, insightful, specific ways. You can also talk about what people love about the experience, whether that be kids with a happy meal or people coming together over a cup of coffee, you know, and debating things in our restaurant. So we found a way to lean into what we call like fan truths, what fans love about McDonald's is a way to give us a little bit of a point of view. But I also think we need to take a stand on certain things. And so this tension that I wrestle with is in a world that is becoming increasingly politicized and divisive and where I think this younger generation that we keep talking about expect brands to have points of view and take stands, where do you choose to and where do you not? And for a brand like McDonald's, that is a very thoughtful, calculated choice. And what we tend to come back to are kind of our guiding values. And they include serve. So, you know, we serve people and food in in communities where we operate. We are very focused on inclusion, which we've talked about a bunch. Integrity. So making sure we're leading with integrity. Community, which gets to this community center and family. So we are always very thoughtful about if we're going to push or take a stand on an issue that it needs to align to our values and not just be politicizing things for the brand. Because I think that's not what we are. You know, we're a brand where people can, anyone is welcome. Everyone's welcome at McDonald's. I mentioned some of those other brands in the category, fast casual QSR category. And one of the things that differentiates you from all of them that I can think of, certainly when you think Starbucks or Chipotle versus even Chick-fil-A, is the geographic ubiquity of your brand, right? You know, when you think Starbucks and Chipotle, they tended to kind of pop up initially in more urban, suburban to urban centers. You've got Chick-fil-A that tends to be maybe suburban or historically at least suburban more to rural. There's a McDonald's in every, I mean, I don't even know how many zip codes there are, but it like feels like there's one everywhere. And that could be, you know, and, and those geographies are proxies for different political points of view and different population and diversity in those populations, right? For you to be able to deliver on that brand promise in all of those different places. Yeah, it, it, you've got to be very thoughtful about which things you yeah. choose to engage on. I guess what I would say then, is that when you do engage on something, it's a really big deal because it's notable. Like, wow, they don't typically pick a side. And you guys were notably outspoken during the George Floyd crisis last summer. So what was that litmus test like? And, you know, again, when a company as large as yours puts your weight behind something like that, obviously it catches a lot of attention. So what was that discussion like, or what was that thought process like? Yeah. I mean, I think across the country, people, no matter what, were very shaken by what happened. And it led to a great deal of reflection, a a number of, I think, very important conversations here around how we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion across every single thing we do. And I think as an organization, we will be better and stronger as a result of that. But specifically, because we did speak out, you know, and talk about our reflections on George Floyd and our commitment to standing against hate and racial injustice And it actually, it was not a hard decision because when we think about the people we serve 
And the people we employ across our restaurant crew and staff, whether it be corporate staff or all of our restaurant employees, you know, we felt we could see many people who were impacted by what had happened. And we felt we needed to have a voice in it. It was not a hard decision. I think we needed to make sure we got the tone right, but it was not a hard decision to stand and talk about how all of these examples George Floyd and many other people, we talked about how they were all one of us and we saw them in our crew and in our people and in the people we served. And we were standing against hate kind of through that statement. Now, what's been important since then, and what was what I'll say is what was really interesting is the outpouring of support that came after we made that statement, both internally and I would say, John, as you were mentioning, because our people were surprised that we would stand that clearly against what had happened, but also all of our stakeholders. There was a lot of support for having done that. And it really, I think, reaffirmed a commitment to our values and in particular, our values around inclusion and that we open our doors to everyone because it was a action that reinforced our commitment to that value. Now, what will be important, and we've really spent a lot of time over the last year talking about this is it has to be more than just a statement. Now, how do our actions follow? And that's where we're doing a lot around DEI, both within the company, with our partners, with our suppliers. I've been very actively involved in how we remove barriers around the marketing supply chain. So now we need to make sure we're following those statements with actual actions, because I think McDonald's, given our size and scale, can have significant impact in this area in particular. Well, that's true. I think the fact that there wasn't didn't have to be a whole lot of discussion and thinking about it meant that it was the right decision, right? That's, yeah. I, I mean, a number of our clients reached out to us in the middle of that and said, hey, can you do some research for us to tell us what to do? And we refused to do it. We said, no, you make this decision because it's the right decision, not because our data tells you that there's some commercial efficacy to do it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But you know, you know who never called us for that information? McDonald's never did. Yeah. And you know, the leadership was great. And I think there's, I mentioned this to you when we talked before, I kind of look at the M as like this umbrella, right? And you've got this giant umbrella of, I think inclusivity is the right word, but I would go more than just to say it's a landscape that you're operating it in, but, but you have a unique potential as a brand to unify people, to bring people together around things like that. And I think you've done a great job of it. And shown a lot of leadership. So look, that was very heady, serious stuff we're talking about. Let's, <laughs> it sure um, was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you made a comment about you didn't know if you could solve it. I was like, you better be careful. If you can solve a problem like that, people are going to get you to run for office. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I'm right. happy as a marketer. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. So I love to wrap these up with some fun poll questions that we're asking. They're always sort of the trending questions of the time for us and just kind of a fun way to wrap things up. So no wrong answer. Well, there might be one. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. What's your favorite season of the year for seasonal food? I love Thanksgiving. So fall seasonal. And I love Thanksgiving. I love the Thanksgiving meal. I could do that multiple times. Well, that's the most autumn is the number one answer. 31%. Oh, is it really? Yes, it is. Summer is just behind it at 29%, which is my pick because I'm like a corn on the cob and like fresh tomato person and like burgers on the the grill, but it's a tough call. I I would lose out to everyone else in my family who would all agree with you about autumn. That is the number one. All right. Second question. How many alarms do you usually need to get out of bed in the morning? 
Oh, depends on the day. Usually two, but you know what I will say, actually, like my alarm goes off twice, but I have this amazing relentless alarm clock, which is my five-year-old son who like Uh comes up and starts tapping me on the forehead. So I can't turn him off. Unfortunately, that's my problem. (laughs) We have a new puppy. Well, a six month old puppy. And yeah, I, I would, if I ever slept until my alarm went off, that would be like the greatest day ever. That has not happened. I was going to say it rarely happens. It's every once in a while on the weekends. 37% of people don't use an alarm. Now this is the U.S. population. So that could be a bunch of people who are older and retired as well. But at two to three, you're about 15% of people. There's some people, 4%, 9% of people need to hit their alarm at least four times before they wake up, which. Yeah, that's a rough start to the day. Yes, it is. Bruce Springsteen, overrated or underrated? Oh my God, underrated. Like I'm totally a child of Bruce Springsteen. Like totally underrated. Yeah, he's only 10% of people say Bruce Springsteen's underrated. That puts him in the upper echelon. We ask this question about a lot of music artists, and that is upper echelon stuff when only 10% of people, he's pretty universally adored, it turns out. So 10% say he's. Oh, no, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that right. You're right. No, 29% say he's overrated. So still pretty. So 71% of people say he's underrated to properly rated. Who could say he's overrated? 29% of people say he's overrated. I'll bet you, incidentally, apropos of our conversation, there's a political correlation to some of that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, he's a pretty outspoken dude. That could hurt. But still, 71% is there aren't many things 71% of Americans agree on, but they agree on Bruce Springsteen. When you wear, well, so there's a cop-out answer on this one, but do you usually fully tie and untie your shoes every time you wear them, presuming you're wearing shoes that you'd have to tie? Well, I mean, the beauty of COVID was like, I wore slippers. That has been one of the benefits of coming back into the office is I actually wear real shoes, but I wear sneakers and I wear slip-on sneakers. So it's hard to answer. I don't untie or tie ever. So you just don't wear shoes with laces. That's probably a fascinating trend. I'd have to look at like NPD group data on shoe sales since the pandemic have shoes with laces like completely fallen out of vogue. And like heels, someone should, I've got to believe heels have totally, I know that might not be in your consideration set, John, but like heels, who wears heels anymore? Right. I mean, well, even like, I wouldn't even know how to tie a necktie right now. I haven't even worn a suit and tie in almost two years, which is, I mean, can I turn this on you? Are you wearing tie shoes right now? Well, no, right now I'm in my house too. I'm wearing slip on sandals over socks, which is is worse. Like my Adidas flip-flops, but no, I do wear tied shoes like Pumas and Adidas or whatever a lot. And I never untie them. I just like, which you know is terrible for the shoe because it totally stretches them out. But so the answer to that is 42% 42% of people always untie and untie their shoes and 20% like me never do it. 16% of people say I never wear shoes with laces. So I think that number is going to go up a good bit. I think so too. Continue to climb. All right. Last but not least, do you enjoy being on the receiving end of a surprise? No, I actually hate, I really hate surprises. Yeah, me too. I'm curious where I fall on that one. Like, I'm yeah. with you, by the way. I hate it. I don't even like, there's a rule in my company that you're not allowed to call or email or text me and say, hey, can you get on a call with me? You're not even allowed to do that. You've got to tell me explicitly what you want to get on the phone about. Cause I'll, I don't know. I'll just like worry about what it's about if you don't tell me. So yeah, I hate any kind of surprise at all. It's remarkable bell curve. So 20% of people say they love being on the receiving end of surprise. 20% hate it. And then 
31% are like, uh, I like it a little bit. And 26% say, uh, I kind of dislike it. Right. So there's this like interesting equal distribution of people. I'm with you in the not at all camp, like no way. It'd be really interesting to then like understand what the psychographic mix is of each of those groups of people. Yeah, for sure. That's actually an interesting question. I think incidentally, maybe same with the people who never tie their untie their shoes. I think there's probably some traits in that too. Well, look, I'll tell you what wasn't a surprise was how much fun this conversation was. It was just really, you know, we're talking about such you know, really big issues and huge trends, but to see it from the perspective where you sit in this just massive, you know, beloved and influential company, it's just so, it's so cool to hear your thoughts on all these things that I just sort of see in my my daily life as a McDonald's customer, but as also as a parent and obviously somebody who kind of studies data inside and out for a living. It's just super cool to hear your take on it. Thank you so much for spending the time with me to do this. I know how incredibly busy you are. Congrats on all the success that you've had in your career, but also that McDonald's has had in the last, well, forever, but particularly since through the pandemic, I hope all that success continues for everybody. And be careful, I might invite you back sometime. I was going to say, I have loved it. It's been really fun. I'm so appreciative of you guys. You've made us smarter through the pandemic, but it's been really fun, John, and I would love to come back another time. So keep me on your list. All right, will do. Thank you, Morgan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 